This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. It's really good to be here in Santa Fe and to see everybody here and everybody here for poetry. Yay, poetry. <laughs> We're all so excited to welcome Tracy K. Smith to Santa Fe. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, a historical trading center, idea center, cultural confluence, a city different, a, haven where, a place of a haven of artists and those who love art and those who love poetry. Because there's something about how the earth and the sky meet here in this place that is beyond magic. Santa Fe was multicultural long before there was such a term. The original peoples of these lands on which we are standing and sitting are the Pueblo peoples, the Tewa. They call Santa Fe Oga Poogi, or White Shell Water Place. Those keepers of the land are still here in full force, though you may not think you see them or hear them. They are here taking care of these lands. That is part of the reason why the land still sustains us. Those places in which the indigenous caretakers are massacred or dragged away, the lands are disturbed, and no one will find peace until they acknowledge the story. So, Mado, Mado, we say in Muscogee language, we acknowledge you. And we ask the keepers to notice and care for this young poet who is traveling here among us. Tracy K. Smith was born in Massachusetts, and in the early 70s, and was raised in Northern California. Her people come from Alabama. Her poetry spirit was fed by the questions that grew within her as she came of age, in a trickle-down economics age, MTV, the introduction of the computer, the digital shift, and gangster rap. After graduating from Harvard and Columbia, she held a Stegner Fellowship at Stanford, her first book, The Body's Question, 2003, which won the Kavi Kanem Prize for the best first book by an African-American poet, was quite, quite the breakout book. This book's poetry is driven by that youthful impetus to know the edges of the body, where they meet with the physical realities and histories of the manifest world. The body is memory, she says in this book. Her next collection, Duende, won the John McLaughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets. I have so many favorite lines from that collection. This one encapsulates the concept or person of Duende. Where the world I know and the world I fear threaten to meet. We all know that place. Another favorite line is from her poem, The Searchers, is, Either way, the land went on living. Life on Mars, published in 2012, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, and deservedly so. Many signature poems here, but one of my favorites is among the quieter of the poems, The Good Life. I think of the poem as if it were a splurge cut of meat wrapped in butcher paper for dinner, carried under the speaker's arm as she walks home after she's been living on beans or ramen noodles. 
thinking, <laughs> thinking of this poem. And the poem is, When some people talk about money, they speak as if it were a mysterious lover who went out to buy milk and never came back. <laughs> and it makes me nostalgic for the years I've lived on coffee and bread, hungry all the time, walking to work on payday like a woman journeying for water from a village without a well, then living one or two nights like everyone else on roast chicken and red wine. Her memoir, Ordinary Spirit, which is anything but ordinary, rather an illuminating story of the poet who was becoming a poet, was a finalist for the National Book Award in nonfiction. And most recently, Wade in the Water, 2018, which has been called the retelling of the American story. I think of it as a book of origin stories. There is no one story of race, culture, natives, African-Americans, America, or Earth, these poems will tell you. These poems are complex, convoluted, with intimate details running zigzag through the whole weave. With each creation, this beloved poet continues to build a legacy of poetry of our times, of her generation, of our history together as poets and lovers of poetry. We needed this poet, Tracy K. Smith, and she showed up. I am pleased to welcome to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and to this stage, the U.S. Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joy, for that beautiful and generous introduction. Um, I love hearing my poem in your voice. I wish I could just keep it like that. Um, It's just such a delight to be here. This is my second visit to Santa Fe, which is truly one of the most beautiful and special places that I've ever visited. So so, I feel so lucky to be back um, for poetry with one of my favorite poets. I thought I would start by reading a couple of poems from my second book, Duende. Um, I think these are the poems that made it so that I had to write um, Life on Mars. That doesn't quite make sense the way I said it, but I'll read you two poems that I think of as Western poems. Um, And they closed off space for one science fiction poem that I that I wrote during that same period. And um, maybe it was just being thrifty with my poems or being stubborn that you know caused me to return to that poem and, and I think push into the very same questions but through a different vocabulary, which is what I think that we are doing as poets all the time. I know that for myself, I have just about two questions. Um, you know, They're like, what, what, what are we doing to each other? And what are we a part of? What is this thing that we belong to? And, of course, there are different scales and contexts within which you can, you can try and get some, some 
headway in those questions. So um, this is The Searchers, and it's after the film of the same title by John Ford. It's a very um, disturbing Western, one of his later films. It stars John Wayne, and um, in the film, uh, John Wayne plays a dark, kind of hateful um, uncle, an ex-Confederate soldier, who um, is looking for two of his family members, nieces, I believe, who were um, abducted during a raid um, by Comanche um, peoples. And um, he doesn't necessarily want to help her when he finds one of them, but his his sense of her life as having been um, tainted by having been fully integrated into a new community is such that he wants to kill her. That's his first impulse, which um, he struggles with. It's an awful feeling, but I think it's a, it's a film that paints a really useful portrait of America. And I know it upsets so many people to think of this place in those terms, but I think they're, um, I think they're native terms. This is, this is um, part of the awful conundrum that we emerge from. The searchers. He wants to kill her for surviving, for the language she spits, the way she runs, clutching her skirt as if life pools there. Instead, he grabs her, puts her on his saddle, rides back into town where faces she barely remembers smile into her fear with questions and the wish, the impossible wish, to forget. What does living do to any of us? And why do we grip it, hang on as if it's the ribs of a horse past commanding? A beast that big could wreck us easily, could rise up on two legs or kick its back end up and send us soaring We might land any moment like cheap toys. There's always a chimney burning in the mind, a porch where the rocker still rocks, though empty. Why do we insist our lives are ours? Look at the frontier. It didn't resist, gave anyone the chance to plant shrubs, dig Wells, watched, not really concerned with whether it belonged to him or to him. Either way, the land went on living, dying. What else could it choose? And um, this is a more um, private poem. Um, but I think it, it draws from similar cosmology. It's called Western Fragment. And I said, we were tired of dry spells, the whole town knee-deep in drought. When air stirred, only bone responded, that empty clack and rattle of a body hungry for some peace. We girls took to wearing dresses, flowered dresses that pointed where the wind went, bore witness, sucked 
parsley, stroked ourselves, thinking leather, like lovers of some drowned outlaw. We'd wake, wishing for something slow down the throat, like mules hitched always to the same spot, hooves wearing their groove into plank. And you said, the crossing was too narrow. By the time we watered the cattle, most of them were half dead. We were too, but we didn't show it. That's not what men do. We pitched our tents, tied the herd, ate what we could kill. A man doesn't have time to think about a woman when the sky's that vast, that bright and near. When a man's on his horse and the sun's behind his back, if the cattle are contented, then he might think about a woman. Women. Thank you. Um, and I think, in a way, those are those are the s- different scales that I, I'm interested in operating at. You know, one that has to do with you know how what it feels like to live in intimate terms with people that you know, people that you trust, and then the other is okay. Well, what what does it mean to be members of this larger thing, like a nation, or um, you know, even something like a civilization, and. Um, it's always more interesting to think about the mistakes that we make, I think, in poems, and so that's where my imagination often goes. In um, in Life on Mars, the framework that seemed useful for me was that of science fiction, and then to the extent that my you know intellect was capable of um, the actual universe. And um, so I'll start with a poem that um, didn't fit in Duende. It's called Sci-Fi. And, you know, I'm sure maybe you all have known this all along, but it took me writing these poems to realize, oh, science fiction isn't really about the future at all. It's about the present. It's about saying, okay, okay, so if we don't change anything about what we do, what we believe, and what we, what we revere, what will the future look like? Again, it's always more interesting when that is the bleak portrait, and it's usually a bleak portrait. So, sci-fi. There will be no edges, but curves. Clean lines pointing only forward. History, with its hard spine and dog-eared corners, will be replaced with nuance, just like the dinosaurs gave way to mounds and mounds of ice. Women will still be women, but the distinction will be empty. Sex, having outlived every threat, will gratify only the mind, which is where it will exist. For kicks, we'll dance for ourselves before mirrors studded with golden bulbs. The oldest among us will recognize that glow, but the word sun will have been reassigned to a standard uranium-neutralizing device found in households and nursing homes. And yes, we'll live to be much older thanks to popular consensus. 
weightless, unhinged, eons from even our own moon, we'll drift in the haze of space, which will be, once and for all, scrutable and safe. Um, I think this is a poem about America. It's called The Universe is a House Party. The universe is expanding. Look, postcards and panties, bottles with lipstick on the rim, orphan socks and napkins dried into knots. Quickly, wordlessly, all of it whisked into file with radio waves from a generation ago, drifting to the edge of what doesn't end, like the air inside a balloon. Is it bright? Will our eyes crimp shut? Is it molten, atomic, a conflagration of suns? It sounds like the... It sounds like the kind of party your neighbors forget to invite you to. Bass throbbing through walls and everyone thudding around drunk on the roof. We grind lenses to an impossible strength, point them toward the future, and dream of beings we'll welcome with indefatigable hospitality. How marvelous you've come. We won't flinch at the pinprick mouths, the nubbin limbs, will rise, grassle, robust. Mi casa es su casa, never more sincere. Seeing us, they'll know exactly what we mean. Of course, it's ours. If it's anyone's, it's ours. As I was thinking about <clears throat> the present and the future and space as a kind of a background for those kinds of questions, um, my father became ill and ended up passing away in a relatively short amount of time. And my mental terrain, um, the universe, felt well-suited to the questions of loss and grief that I was um, that I was working through. And um, so I'll share some of the poems that are written for him. Um, this first one, I love writing poems because they show you what's on your mind or what's on your heart. You start out with a topic or, a, you know, something intentional. And then if you're lucky, the poem swerves in another direction so that you get close to what you need to be thinking about, what you need to bring into language. I think of that um, when, I, when, I, when I think of this poem, which I wrote originally as part of this series, The Universe Poems, and I thought, oh, what does the universe sound like? Um, and then as I began to read this poem, I realized, oh, this, is a, this poem was probably a re- rehearsal for the elegies that I, I would come to need to write. This is called The Universe Original Motion Picture Soundtrack. The first track still almost swings. Hi-hat and snare, 
even a few bars of sax, the stratosphere will singe out soon enough. Synthesized strings. Then something like cellophane, breaking in as if snagged to a shoe. Crinkle and drag. White noise, black noise. What must be voices bob up, then drop, like metal shavings in molasses. So much for us. So much for the flags we board into planets dry as chalk. For the tin cans we filled with fire and rode like cowboys into all we tried to tame. Listen. The dark we've only ever imagined, now audible, thrumming, marbled with static like grisly meat. A chorus of engines, churns, silence taunts, a dare. Everything that disappears, disappears as if returning somewhere. I'll read you a couple of um, poems for my father. They belong to a sequence called The Speed of Belief. Um, I wrote this this sequence in the days after after his death when I woke up and felt that I needed to be near to him. And I didn't know exactly what I needed to say, what I wanted to remember. Often I would turn to a form that would require my thinking to take certain steps or turns. And in doing that, I felt like um, some of the distance between us and the mystery between us was made smaller. Um, so I'll read you a couple of sections. This, this is a, um, a brief guzzle. What does the storm set free? Spirits stripped of flesh on their slow walk. The poor in cities learn, when there is no place to lie down, walk. At night, the streets are minefields. Only sirens drown out the cries. If you're being followed, hang on to yourself and run. No, walk. I wandered through evenings of lit windows, laughter inside walls. The soul steps amid street lamps, errant stars. Nothing else below walked. When we believed in the underworld, we buried fortunes for our dead. Low country of dogs and servants, where ghosts in gold-stitched robes walk. Old loves turn up in dreams, still livid at every slight. Show them out. This bed is full. Our limbs tangle in sleep, but our shadows walk. Perhaps one day it will be enough to live a few seasons and return to ash. No children to carry our names. No grief. Life will be a brief, hollow walk. My father won't lie still 
though his legs are buried in trousers and socks. But where does all he knew, and all he must now know, walk? Um... Probably, he spun out of himself and landed squarely in that there, his new body capable, lean, vibrating at the speed of belief. She was probably waiting in the light, everyone describes, gesturing for him to come. Surely they spent the whole first day together, walking past the city and out into the orchards where perfect figs and plums ripen without fear. They told us not to go tipping tables looking for them, not even to visit their bodies in the ground. They are sometimes maybe what calls out to people stuck in some impossible hell. The ones who later recall, I heard a voice saying, go. And finally, as if by magic, I was able simply to go. I guess I want to um, honor some of the small things that poems are so great at helping us to see or revisit. We were just talking before um, coming out here about how poetry is like a time machine. It allows you to slow down time or stop it or step outside of it and move around to something that, that happened in real time too quickly, or that happened and feels so far away, um, in language, you can get close to it. And I believe that you can look at it more closely than you might have been able to in the moment that it actually happened. And you have the chance to bring the right questions to bear upon whatever it is that you're returning to, which I think is such a gift. Um, We live at such a fast, um, fast pace so much of the time. Um, so this is a little, a little poem for my husband. Song. I think of your hands all those years ago, learning to maneuver a pencil or struggling to fasten a coat. The hands you'd sit on in class, the nails you chewed absently the clumsy authority with which they'd sail to the air when they knew you knew the answer. I think of them lying empty at night, of the fingers wrangling something from your nose or buried in the cave of your ear. All the things they did cautiously, pointedly, obedient to the suddenest whim. Their shames, how they failed, what they won't forget year after year. Or now, resting on the wheel or the edge of your knee, 
I'm trying to decide what they feel when they wake up and discover my body is near. Before touch, pushing off the ledge of the easy quiet, dancing between us. Let's get rid of some of this paperwork up here. It's too much. Um, I think Wade in the Water, my, my newest book, is is still dwelling in so many of the same questions, but the the landscape or the backdrop is um, history. Um, I wonder, I hope, that um, in looking back and listening more deeply to voices that might not have ever been central voices to the American narrative, it might be possible to hear something that could be newly useful, something that could um, rescue us from the mistakes that we're perpetuating. Um, and so there are a lot of poems in which I'm looking at early America, looking in particular at the institution of slavery and the lives that it um, shaped. And um, and then the other direction I think these poems are thinking in is toward the earth, I had a lot of fun trying to imagine the universe, and um, I left that work feeling so grateful. Um, I left New York not too soon after and moved to Princeton, New Jersey, which is, you know, small. It's green. There are animals. And um, I feel like there are answers in um, nature. I feel like nature is one of the the few remaining sites of the holy. And so part of my attention in this book is turned toward that. Um, Let's see. I'll start out with a poem that's, um, I think of it as my 21st century lament, um, or one of them, maybe every poem I write in in a way is kind of that. Um, This one is called Annunciation. Obviously you'll recognize that title. Um, I think think of the the moment that, you know, Mary in the Bible, an ordinary woman or girl, was told something has touched you and everything is going to be different from now on. And sometimes I yearn for some voice to come out of nowhere to say, everything is going to be different in just the right way. Um, Annunciation. I feel ashamed, finally, of our magnificent paved roads, our bridges slung with steel, our vivid glass, our tantalizing lights, everything enhanced, rehearsed, a trick. I've turned old. I ache most to be confronted by the real, by the cold, the pitiless, the bleak, by the red fox crossing a field after snow, by the broad shadow scraping past overhead. My young son, eyes set at an indeterminate distance, ears locked, tuned inward, caught in some music only he has ever heard. Not our cars, our electronic 
haze. Not the piddling bleats and pings that cause some hearts to race. Ashamed, like a pebble, hard and small, hoping only to be ground to dust by something large and strange and cruel. I'll read you. I was going to read sort of a happy poem, but... Um, this is another, this is a poem thinking about the earth. Um, I like poems that, and I teach creative writing, so sometimes I'll have my students, um, you know, say something like, write a poem that is an extended metaphor that the title sets up and just commit to that metaphor the whole way. Um, I like poems that do that, so this is my attempt to do such a thing. It's called The World is Your Beautiful Younger Sister. Seeing her as seldom as you do, it doesn't change. The ire, the shame, the fists you must remember to smooth flat, just thinking what they did, what they promised, then took. Those men who offered to pay, to keep, the clan of them lording it over the others like high school boys and their kid brothers, men with interests to protect and mute marble wives, men who let her beam into their faces, watching her shoulders rise, her astonishing new breasts, making her believe it was she who gave permission They plundered her youth, then moved on. Those awful, awful men. The ones whose wealth is a kind of filth. Um, So... um, In looking back at history, uh, different sources, documents, letters, legal statements, um, I wanted to hear something that could be relevant. And I feel like these documents said, okay, you want to hear something relevant? Well, listen to this. Um, So I'm going to read you a poem that's an erasure of the Declaration of Independence. And I feel like it just leapt out at me in that way. Um, And it spoke so powerfully um, effortlessly to what I think of as the history of black life in this, in this country. I think it speaks to other histories as well. Um, declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our ravaged our, destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, 
and altering fundamentally the forms of our in every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury we have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here taken captive on the high seas to bear Um, and this next poem also comes from, you know, the same general period. Um, it is drawn from, I'm going to try and be as concise but clear. Um, it's drawn from the text of letters that a family, a slave-holding South Carolina family called the Joneses, wrote back and forth between one another in, um, you know, mid-1800s. They were writing because there was a family that was enslaved to them. One of the daughters had um, run away and was presenting herself as um, having been given permission by her, uh, her owners to travel and make some extra money. They found out about this and they were torn, trying to figure out, how to punish the family, how to keep their example from causing, you know, up, uprising or um, unrest in in other, you know, enslaved people's um, families that also belong to them. And um, I wanted to hear something else in these voices. The history of people who were enslaved is so um, under cataloged and I wanted to imagine that I could will myself to hear the voices of that young woman and her parents um, so <clears throat> I, I collected all you know the, those letters and I went through highlighting different statements that sounded like they might be speaking against the grain And this is what I came up with. This poem is called The Greatest Personal Privation. And it opens with a letter that um, Mary Jones wrote to one of her cousins. This was before the, you know, their dilemma had arisen. But she was uh, away from home, convalescing, and she missed the company of two of the women enslaved to her, whose names were Patience and Phoebe. And so she said... The greatest personal privation I have had to endure has been the want of either patience or Phoebe. Tell them I am never, if life is spared us, to be without both of them again. That seems so frightening to me. So imagine this is patience or Phoebe speaking. It is a painful and harassing business belonging to her. We have had trouble enough, have no comfort or confidence in them, and they appear unhappy themselves, no doubt from the trouble they have occasioned. They could dispose of the whole family without consulting us, mother, 
father, every good cook, washer, and seamstress, subject to sale. I believe good shall be glad if we may have hope of the loss of trouble. I remain in glad conscience, at peace with God and the world. I have prayed for these people many, many, very many times. Much as I should miss mother, I've had trouble enough and wish no more to be only waiting to be sent home in peace with God. In every probability, we may yet discover the whole country will not come back from the sale of parent and child. So far as I can see, the loss is great and increasing. I know they have desired we should not know what was for our own good. But we cannot be all the cause of all that has been done. We wish to act. We may yet. But we have to learn what their character and moral conduct will present. We have it in contemplation to wait and see. If good, we shall be glad. If evil, then we must meet evil as best we can. Father, mother, son, daughter, man. And if that family is sold, please, we cannot, please, we have got to, Please, the children, mother and father and husband and all of you, all, I have no more. How soon and unexpectedly cut off many, many, very many times. Um... um. I'm trying to think. Uh, one of the, maybe I'll read the title poem. It, it's um, a poem that changed uh, my sense of the shape of this book or the questions that I was asking because it introduced another vocabulary term into it, which is love. Um, I visited rural Georgia doing research for a project that I'm working on and I visited a great, you know, number of sites of the, you know, slave history of this country, um, the dark feeling that these, these spaces uh, generate or create um, was weighing heavily upon me. And then I went to a ring shout, and, which, as you know, is a tradition, an African-American tradition that bears marked connections to West African tradition of song, praise, community, um, and I went into the space where a group of performers were going to be singing some spirituals and, and performing together, and one of the women who was one of the performers saw me, and she said, I love you, and um, I felt so enlarged by that, and 
I thought, oh, wouldn't it mean so much if we could look at each other like that? If we could learn that love is not something to be like miserly about and protective of. Um, this particular woman is named Bertha McKnight, and she says that to everyone. I, I stood there, I kind of broke down, I was pulling it together, and then I heard her say to the people behind me, I love you, I love you. It wasn't cheap, it felt real. It felt like this huge humanizing choice that she was making. And this is a poem that I just wanted to write so that I could go back into that feeling. It's called Wade in the Water. One of the women greeted me. I love you, she said. She didn't know me, but I believed her. And a terrible new ache rolled over in my chest, like in a room where the drapes have been swept back. I love you. I love you. As she continued down the hall, past other strangers, each feeling pierced suddenly by pillars of heavy light. I love you throughout the performance, in every hand clap, every stomp. I love you in the rusted iron chains someone was made to drag until love let them be unclasped and left empty in the center of the ring. I love you in the water where they pretended to wade, singing that old blood-deep song that dragged us to those banks and cast us in. I love you. The angles of it scraping at each throat, shouldering past the swirling dust motes in those beams of light that whatever we now knew we could let ourselves feel new to climb. Oh, woods. Oh, dogs. Oh, tree. Oh, gun. Oh, girl, run. Oh, miraculous, many, gone. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Is this love the trouble you promised? Thank you. Um, so that, <clears throat> that beautiful capacity um, is something that I feel like I've been trying to learn a little bit better. Um, and I think it really is a choice. Like you can decide that you're going to look at someone through that forgiving or embracing lens, or you can decide that they're in your way and you're late and what you have to do is important and they're just a hindrance. Um, and yeah, so these are some thought exercises. This is a poem that's thinking about this choice um, and how sometimes difficult it is to make. Beatific. I watch him bob across the intersection, squat legs bowed, 
in black sweatpants. I watch him smile at nobody, at our traffic stopped to accommodate his slow going. His arms churn the air. His comic jog carries him nowhere. But it is as if he hears a voice in our idling engines calling him lithe, swift, prince of creation. Every least leaf shivers in the sun while we sit bothered, late, captive to this thing commanding, wait for this man, wait for him. Charity. She is like a squat old machine, off kilter but still chugging along the uphill stretch of sidewalk on Harrison Street, handbag slung crosswise, and, I'm guessing, heavy. And oh, the set of her face, her brows profound tracks, her mouth cinched, lips pressed flat. Watching her bend forward to tussle with gravity. Watching the birth she allows each foot as if one is not on civil terms with the other. Watching her shoulders braced as if lashed by step after step after step. And her eyes' determination not to shift or blink or rise, I think, I am you, one day out of five, tired, empty, hating what I carry, but afraid to lay it down, stingy, angry, doing violence to others by the sheer freight of my gloom, halfway home, wanting to stop, to quit, but keeping going, mostly out of spite. Um, I'll close with this poem. Um, I think of it as, you know, my attempt to write a new myth. And I feel like this is something we should all be uh, directing our energy toward. So much of our sense of who we are, you know, we, this country, is about, you know, the past. Looking backward, finding, like cherry-picking these characters from the past that aggrandize our sense of what we're doing, justify our sense of what we've done. Um, I think it's time to write some new myths that might help us be honest with ourselves and make sense of what we must now do. So this is, you know, my little attempt to do that. Everybody should go home and do this tonight. Um, An old story. We were made to understand it would be terrible. Every small want every niggling urge, every hate swollen to a kind of epic wind, livid the land and ravaged like a rageful dream, the worst in us having taken over 
and broken the rest utterly down. A long age passed. When, at last we knew, how little would survive us, how little we had mended or built that was not now lost, something large and old awoke. And then our singing brought on a different manner of weather. Then animals long believed gone crept down from trees. We took new stock of one another. We wept to be reminded of such color. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. It's beautiful. You read most of my favorite oh, poems. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> that was great. But first of all, I don't know how you do it. I mean, you're a professor at Princeton. You're the U.S. Poet Laureate, and you're going everywhere for that. You're the mother of three children, including a, a set of young twins. <laughs> and you travel and perform, and you have projects and, and so on. So, and then you're about to, you just gave a wonderful performance, and now you're about to be interviewed. And I think <laughs> maybe you need to rest. <laughs> you just sit here for a while and maybe just sit here and visit. Okay. Yeah, we'll try <laughs> to do it. Good. Let's sit here and visit like we're on the front porch, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, imagine this is the front porch, and you guys have all got, you know, it's warm, you got tea and everything. So, uh, anyway... I just uh, last fall, um, my graduate class focused on poetic memoir, and we read a lot of texts, including Ed Hirsch's Gabriel, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth Alexander's wonderful memoir, Light of the World, uh, in Scott Mamaday's book, Way to Rainy Mountain, which I teach as poetic memoir, and and your memoir, Ordinary Spirit. And early on in my reading of your memoir, I remember sitting down to read it, and then I st- realized I was resisting you at first. And that surprised me, and I was, it's beautiful writing. And I realized it was because you reminded me of my sister in a way that mm. you are the youngest, mm-hmm. and the youngest <laughs> always has, you know, has a special place. And there I was, the older sister who, <laughs> you know, made the path through my rebellion, the rebellion path. But then, as I continued your memoir, reading your story, you had me, because it felt like. Suddenly, and this is how you want a book to feel, a book of poetry, a memoir, like I was with you, and I was in those intimate spaces of growing up and questioning, mm-hmm. because really that's what kind of what makes a poet, is those questions of the holy. And um, so you were intrigued, and you questioned doctrines that tightened your spirit, and then every touchstone, touchstone poet or poem you had, that was mine too. I kept, you know, the Song of Solomon in the Bible. You know, I used to read that in, in church when I get bored during the sermon. You know? <laughs> really, yeah. And then Lucille Clifton and especially the Emily Dickinson poem, I'm Nobody, Who Are You? I love that poem so much. It's in my 
Uh, I put the whole poem in my next collection. Oh. And, but reading that poem when I was eight years old, and it was one of the first times, and, and I love poetry, and my mom wrote songs, and I love lyrics, and I, liked, I loved listening to those. But it was the first time in a poem that I'd read that I felt personally invited in to that yeah. private space, like somebody was speaking to me. Yeah, and I was wanted to, you to comment maybe on your mutual appreciation of that poem, and also reading poetry younger because there's younger people out here too. Oh yeah, yeah, that poem really—it um, feels like somebody has kind of cornered you, yeah. and then told you everything that you have not brought into language about who you are. You know, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. Suddenly you're you're validated and you're invited into some sort of a pact or something. I loved that feeling. Um, it also was exciting. I felt you know as a kid, oh here's an adult who's interested in me. Yeah. Here's somebody who who recognizes something. I think all we all crave that. But I think as children, it's really meaningful when when that happens and to see it happen in a in a poem that I could return to, that I could keep inside of me, it felt huge. Um, it felt like a, a, an example of what I wanted to be able to do when I grew up. So, so did you start writing poetry shortly after that? I that know you were all, yeah, that same day. <laughs> I wrote a, a very bad uh, poem that day. But what I feel like I was saying was, I want, I want to do this. I loved reading poetry, and most of the time I didn't know. If you asked me what the poem was about, I wouldn't have been able to really say much. But I loved the, the different space language could take you to, rhythmically and musically, looking at something that seemed invisible before. And I, you know, I would open books and, and want to feel that. Um, and when I really got serious about trying to write poems, I think it was a, wanting to create a version of that, wanting to be able to take myself somewhere and use language coming out of my own mouth to teach me something that I didn't know, which is, I think, what poetry does. Yeah. It's, there's something about that kind of space. We were talking in, you know, earlier about it being a space where all there's your father again. Mm-hmm. You can walk. I love that line. The mystery, it's a play. Poems are places where the mystery between us is made smaller, as you said when talking about mm-hmm. your father. Mm-hmm. So they do become, you know, places that hold spirit in a way. Yeah. I think poems take us to our larger selves. It's like we live with something around us or in us that we don't. Recognize, but it's us. It's mm-hmm. more us than we are. And poems, I think, are one of the things that lets us kind of get closer to that, to listen, you know, maybe without even knowing, but to listen to that, that largeness. Um, and we, I think we just need that. We need that because every, just about everything else I can think of in our culture is in the business of making us small, that's true, yeah. Yeah, because language can either enlarge you, enlarge the feeling, and make you want to, like the woman telling you she loved you. Mm-hmm. And a poem can do that. Or the language is a kind of political rhetoric 
that divides you and mm-hmm. makes you hate each other. Yeah, or makes you think, oh, I, this is what category I fit into. This is what I want. Yeah. This is what my life's supposed to be like. Okay, I'll just do that. Right. It yeah. becomes, you know, a stereotype for uh, particular tropes or so mm-hmm. on. Yeah. So there's a lot of young people out here and who are starred in people older people because sometimes sometimes you don't start writing till later I didn't start playing saxophone when I was almost 40 and I felt like I was late getting started writing poetry but they're just starting to write and um, you said you said a lot of things but you know about a poem being this large and I know when I write a poem it's like I, if I think I know what I'm doing then I'm out of luck already <laughs> you know I've learned that you know the hard way <laughs> but, uh, but getting there, you know, how do you, how do you, you're sitting there with a, I wouldn't say a p- piece of paper in my generation, or, mm-hmm. a, you know, a blank screen. I do both, or, you know, but how do you, how do you, what tips, how do you find the poem and how do you challenge mm-hmm. yourself to go beyond what you do? And technically, I mean, your, your, your craft is impeccable, you know, and how do you, balance all of that because one requires this immense you know mm-hmm. tightening and the other part you have you can't think about that at all yeah it's like this sort of meticulous yeah control and gross abandon you know yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. reckless yeah. abandon um i love that a poem allows me to work in both modes which i think you know, are innate to many, to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start out with what I know. I start out with usually what I know is a question or an image. And I take a step or two or three into that. And then I realize I don't know what else to say or do. Um, I go back and I see if there's something that I've said that I can make better use of. And I move forward thinking in terms of sound, thinking visually because it helps me to imagine that I'm someplace I can see, um, and then listening for ideas that, that I can build upon. And I feel best when I'm farthest from what feels safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, you know, in, there's a linear wish that I have. You know, like sometimes I think if I were smarter I would have studied philosophy and I would be a philosopher or something but I I can write poems and they can help me try and ask very simple linear questions about life Um, but the answer often emerges or possibilities emerge from sort of zigzagging through things that shouldn't belong together that associative kind of like movement Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to listen to ways that I can build upon that too. And for me, that means I look at like nouns and verbs and say, okay, well, I'm using these things in a very um, direct, literal way. I'm not getting enough mileage out of them that way. So maybe I can use them in a way that's more rooted in a metaphor, in the wrong context, and bring some sort of associative energy, Mm -hmm. movement, speed, and um, possibility into the poem that way. Okay. <laughs> I'm stuck. I, I know. You know, when you said linear wish, 
I stayed there. <laughs> that's the poet in me. I was, you know, and then I was zigzagging. Well, that's what thinking like, about think linear about, like, wish. Sometimes so, when you're sorry. in poetry reading, that happens. Like you, you, yeah. you hear an image, and it does. It opens this portal for you. But the poet keeps reading. Yes. And then you have to that's get back happened. there. It happens and, in conversation. Too. Yeah, but that's the really interesting kind of covering of ground. That you know, I love. I love catching up and saying, "Oh wait, I'm going to bring this there." Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so we all have ancestors, and I tell my yeah, they inspire, teach, and even haunt us. And uh, as poets, we have poetry ancestors. Some are poets we know or have known, or are just ahead of us generationally, or others continue far back to the generational line. And some we don't even know their names. We just inherit their muscle, their tendencies, their sound pattern proclivities. Your poetry ancestors include Emily Dickinson, uh, Seamus Haney, um, who, you know, I'm envious that you got to work with him, and who leads us directly to Yeats, and then Philip Larkin, Rita Dove, and so on. But is there someone who's had the most influence on you, and have you ever had a falling out with any one of them? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I'm talking on an imaginary yeah, level. Yeah. Um, oh. Well, oh. Well, this is, I have always loved Elizabeth Bishop. And when I started reading her, when I first started writing poems, I liked her control. Yeah. That's what I wanted to, to step into. Yeah. And I found that the wish to have an exercise control prevented me from writing poems because mm-hmm. I didn't have control. Yeah. I didn't have answers. I couldn't make authoritative statements. And, um, and so then I kind of turned against her for a little while. Uh-huh. Now I read and love her and I see what I was blind to before, which was that this incredible, um, you know, her ability to build the world so perfectly in description to um, anchor these poems to this really solid um, mechanism is the tool with which she was able to plunge or attempt to plunge into the, the mess of you know love, loss, desire, just the blur of wanting to be like claimed and changed by the world that you can see so clearly, but that you know there's more to. And I love now her poems for this extreme vulnerability yeah. and um, the courage to to break out of um, order and to get to something that defies explanation. Thinking of that wonderful poem at the fish houses, which I love mm-hmm. so much, um, which becomes this rhythmic incantation. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've, we've made up. We're back together. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think any time that I've, I've turned against a poet that I love, it's because I couldn't see the fullness. You know, I could only see one small thing. Um, and taking some steps back um, has made me able to see a little bit more. And I'm sure there will be more that I come to seeing. Yeah, usually there's something in them that's a lot like you that you don't mm-hmm. want to see. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have a lot of questions here. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering, I think of, sometimes I think of poetry, poetic structure as ceremonial, mm-hmm. like the title gives you the door, and the first line opens the door, 
and then each step is kind of a journey of the becoming of the poem, and the speaker can be coming apart or entering myriad pathways on the way to the last line. And, and in some kinds of poetry, you don't have a last line. There's never any way out. <laughs> you know, it, it just depends. And, um, and this can be true of the structure of a book. But, and so I wonder about your sense of processing and how that's changed from your, uh, you know, putting a poem, I mean, every poem is different. Mm-hmm. But is there a process, and how has your process maybe of writing poetry changed from the body's question to even what, to what you're writing now? Mm-hmm. I love that idea of the ceremony mm-hmm. because it, it also means that there is, there's an, an order, there's a pattern, but there's also something that defies that, that is the life of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the first poems that I, was, that I wrote that I thought were real poems um, are rooted in statement. Mm-hmm. And then I got, you know, I felt more comfortable looking around and bringing image into the poem, but it's really those two things. I think the body's question is me learning to do those two things. Um, I think the poems that I... I feel the poems that I'm writing differently, and I feel like the, one of the central mechanisms is sound and rhythm. Mm-hmm. They still sound like me, but I, can, I feel that the engine driving them is not up here. It's, it's more in the body, I think, it feels like a, a pulse. Um, I think it, it makes space for um, things that I don't understand to come into the poems sometimes. Um, that little catalog of apostrophe toward the end of Wait in the Water, oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh. Um, I didn't know what, where that was coming from when I wrote the poem. Now I can very clearly see those words are coming from almost like a a scene of escape yeah. you know tree gun dogs girl run all of this seemed to emerge up from beneath the poem or something and that was that was my clue that the poem was arriving somewhere um, and i like to have that feeling yeah i love that that i have a whole question about that i love i love that you know what it reminded me of well, there's two things. I don't want to lose track here. Because one references what you were talking about, the earth. Mm-hmm. Because the earth does speak, and there it is. And it does hold our history. It holds our blood. It holds our bones. It holds our stories, our actions, and what we've done. Mm-hmm. But when I, read, I heard that, and I loved hearing you read that, read that, you know. I thought of the end of Toni Morrison's Sula. When mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite book endings. Oh, Lord, Sula, she cried. Girl, 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 girl. There was a fine cry, loud and long, that it had no bottom and it had no top, just circles and circles of sorrow. Mm. And I just, I heard that and I thought, it's beautiful how that continues and it's a similar kind of land and a similar, similar kind of place. And the grief, I think of the water, because water is, holds the emotional, is the emotional carrier mm-hmm. of the earth. And so on. And then I hear you talking about moving where there's, you know, there's actually grass and, you know, plants (laughs) and animals. And it does change because it is holy. It's how we know ourselves, really. And then I hear this coming up from the earth. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess I moved away from my question, but I wondered about the influence of, you know, Toni Morrison or... Oh, gosh. Yeah, just, she's been, people ask me my poetry influence, I always say Toni Morrison, because I feel like she's a novelist, but she writes poetry. Oh, absolutely. And she, she she builds those books doing the impossible, you know, there's, okay, the the deep, the work of, of narrative and history and conscience, but then these radical shifts, oh, the speaker, the narrator suddenly becomes a concept or become, you know, like there's something um, magical that happens. You, you, get, you get rooted in the concerns, uh, the real, so that you can be lifted out of it and, and see, um, I don't know what, evidence of it in you, on you. Um, I love her, and she terrifies me. Yeah, I'm you know? scared of her too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That I admire her. Yeah. And, you know, to think that um, I, you know, I don't know how I finally allowed myself to try and write about slavery, yeah. knowing that the masterpiece that, you know, beloved exists, um, or even a mercy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's exciting to to kind of like move toward what what has been built so beautifully and, and to say I'm going to I'm going to just tinker with this one little one little thing and see what happens. Um, it is so difficult to put into words what can't be spoken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean it's, well you think of grief, you think yeah. of the history of this country that's all of us. It's not, you know, it's all it's all our history. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, yeah, how do you put that into words and how do you tell these stories and I see that happening in like in Wade in the Waters so it comes up in it's like finding our pieces when you know like when I return to the south and see the whole, the American holocaust of our people mm-hmm. and I think well things come up in slivers you find slivers of pottery like finding shards mm-hmm. it comes up in shards well one thing you can't deal with it all at once it's too you cannot bear it yeah and a shard you can you can yeah. hold yeah, you can hold that. Um, I feel like that's the whole... Inter- I mean, the enterprise of poetry is to bring into language that which doesn't fit, you know, what we... What, and and it's, it's the large public stuff, but it's also the inescapable private stuff, too. Mm-hmm. You know, we have these powerful feelings, and they don't fit in simple speech. And poetry performs this miracle... Yeah, says I can talk about this thing by talking about this thing, and that's going to give you a really close sense to the you know upheaval or the joy or the wonder that I am subject to, you know. So there's all these pieces, all these poems, and they all kind of fit together in a way. So I had a final. Boy, we've got a little bit. Of, I have too many more questions. We're going to have to keep going. No? <laughs> um, I love that you said in Duende, you were, there were, I, in Duende, I kept seeing these hints of life on Mars. I knew you were going to take off. When I was reading those, it's like, okay, you know, here's the body and here's Duende and we're here, but something is, we have to leave for a while to really understand and get that that perspective and look back. Mm-hmm. And so 
Now I'm thinking with weight in the water, and then there's the earth and watershed. I think watershed is one of the most powerful in is one of the most powerful political and echo political poems I've come across. It's an out of body near death experience. It's an out of body an out of body near death experience winds through the testimony of a destroyed watershed. I mean, what a construct. A destroyed family from chemical manufacture. The architecture really makes this poem, and it is personal. There's so many, many personals as well as transcendental. And I was wondering about the process of that poem or how you found that. And then I keep thinking of nature, one of the few remaining sites of the holy. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed by that poem. Thank you. Yeah. Um, That poem, half of that poem is um, like found comes from an, an, an article by Nathaniel Rich about DuPont uh, chemical companies unconscionable surreptitious toxic dumping um, that has not only did it destroy this particular wat- watershed but it, it's everywhere it's gotten into the, the ocean you know animal wildlife we have this, this chemical in us that's, that's terrible um, and I knew I wanted to, to figure out how to wrestle with that in a poem, but I, I just clipped this article and I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and then I, I had this, this other um, space that was so compelling to me, which was the near-death experience narratives, which are, um, they're, com- they're fascinating. They, um, it's basically if somebody dies on the operating table or has a heart attack and flatlines for like a minute, Oftentimes or sometimes people believe they go, you know, they go into the light, they, they're greeted by these spirit beings, they, under, they come to understand something about themselves, about the world, and then they understand that they need to go back because they have work to do. It's like across cultures and belief systems, this is a recurring narrative. Um, and I just, that made so much sense to me. Yeah. And then this awful story made a familiar, awful sense to me. And I, I wanted to see if they could help each other, if they could um, work together to help me write this poem, basically. Um, I really don't know much more about it than that. It, 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 it was this weird notion that seemed to come from somewhere that, that helped me to move through those two sets of material in a way that I hadn't thought of doing before. In a way, that's kind of what you do with, you take the personal, the intimate, which is so beautiful in ordinary spirit. I keep seeing those quail, pewter quails <laughs> on, your, on, the, you know, on the coffee table mm-hmm. and that intimate space of love. And then here we have the DuPont you know, the devastation that we deal with. And yet, in your poetry, from the beginning, you find a way to move, that they move together in us. Mm-hmm. And your poetry does, makes that, and makes it in a way that shows us, again, reminds us who we are, and reminds us of this larger, wild thing that inspires us and keeps us going. And Thank you so much for this time and for being here with Santa Fe. Thank you. you. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast at podcast.lannan.org. 
In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives presents similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. <laughs>